Nice to see you all this morning. My name is Darren, and uh, I welcome you, whether you're a longtime part of the the family around here, or whether you're a guest, we're excited that you're here either way. We're continuing our study in uh, in the book of Genesis, which we'll be in for a little while. We've been in for a little while. I've got a couple announcements as we get started. The first one is this. If you're new to the family around here, or if you're a guest today, you might not even know, but we've got these uh, Genesis journals. So you'll see people with them. This has become a great tool for us here at Fullerton Free of just recording the things that God says to us in an ongoing way through the study, through our devotional times, through our quiet times. And uh, if you've started attending our in-person services over the last month or two, we were all out of those uh, Genesis journals. So you may have looked for one and we didn't have any, but a new shipment of those came in last week. And so if you're wanting one and don't have one yet, they have them in the lobby. Let grab one today because we'd love for you to have it. It's just a great sort of tool to use as we work our way through, but we got more of those. I just want to make sure you're aware of that. Second thing uh, would be just like a really quick announcement about the scaffolding. I think many of you know that during the week we produce uh, a a version of the Broadway show Rent. And uh, that's been a great... Money maker for us, and it's a great source of revenue. And so, just don't be don't be bothered by that. It's just uh, you got a stage; you might as well use it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so we are in the process of uh, re- refurbishing and uh, replacing the glass in the hatch here, and uh, it's taken a lot longer than we thought. We left the outside scaffolding on because that was a great expense. So it's been up for almost a year outside. Inside, we took it down. It's back up, which should be indicative of a couple things. And I don't want to get your hopes up, right? But here's what they're telling me. So we put the scaffolding back up because we're hoping this week the metal frame that holds the glass will go in this week or the next, right? And so uh, this is what they're saying. The metal frame will go in. Once the metal frame goes in, then we order the glass because it's custom glass to go in the window. And uh, once we order the glass, that takes a couple of weeks. And then they install the glass. And supposedly that takes a couple of weeks. So they tell me... We may not have scaffolding or a blue sheet on the roof of our church in six weeks, right? Six weeks. So I think what we'll do is we'll start a kind of a betting pool on that, another source of revenue. And anybody who wants to, uh, anybody who wants to sort of take a raffle ticket on the betting on how long we, I mean, maybe we'll be hanging Christmas lights on it again, but Lord willing, maybe the scaffolding and the windows are all square and we get natural sunlight in here again pretty soon. So we're on our, we're on the way. So we'll see what happens there. I just wanted to give you an update so you knew what was happening here behind me. Um, in the meantime, with the floor being the way it is, just be careful if you're walking down here in the front because there's cables. We've done our best to kind of tape them up and whatever, but just you want to just be cautious. And sometimes hammers fall off scaffolding. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to catch that with your head. So uh, Genesis 13, here's where we are. Those are my announcements. Let's dive into this text. I love this chapter and I find it, uh, I find it really, really interesting. If you were with us last week, we saw that God uh, had called, well, in the last couple of weeks, we saw that God had called Abram to leave his home and his family and his nation and to come to a new place that God would show him. They sojourned together, he and his nephew Lot and their families, but then they kind of get off track a little bit. We saw last week there was a famine. In fact, the word there for the famine is that it was a heavier, a burdensome family, uh, a famine. It was a big famine. So Abram and, uh, and his family, they get a little bit off track and they go to Egypt. Egypt. And uh, there's all kinds of drama that ensues. If you didn't hear that message from last week, I'll invite you to, to find that online and go back to it. But what's interesting here as we come to Genesis 13 is we're seeing a little bit of a reset. I love it here in verse 1. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negev. Um, And and he ends up going back to the place he was before he went to Egypt. So if you were to look at the beginning of chapter 12, you see that Abram and his family had sort of pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai uh, in the hill country there. Now what we see is Abram goes back. It's almost a little bit like a redo. I don't know. 
I don't know what your life is like, but I have one of these that happens about every six to 15 days uh, in my life. I decide to go on a diet and uh, about every six to 15 days, I decide to go on a diet. And then somewhere in that first day, day one of the diet, I look down and I find myself eating a pack of peanut M&Ms. And then I think, well, the diet's ruined. So I throw the diet away. And then a few days after I think, well, I'm going to reset. So we go back, right? You go back and you start again. I love the fact that, that Abram, after this, uh, after this journey into Egypt where so much goes wrong, we see him clinging to try and protect himself and making all kinds of choices uh, that, are, that are damaging to his family, they're damaging to Pharaoh and to Egypt because he's trying to protect himself. Now we see Abram backtrack and he kind of goes back to square one. It's like if you draw the peppermint forest card on Candyland, right? You go all the way, no, no, no Candyland fans? I worked really hard on that, on that reference. I expected you all to track with me on that, right? So he goes back to the peppermint forest, right? Abram goes back, and in essence, the way I read this is a sense of Abram wanting to redo, wanting to restart. He got off track because of the famine, and so he goes back, and in essence, what I'm seeing here is him wanting to start fresh. So this is the way this thing goes. It says, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich. By the way, just for uh, the reference of it, the word here that says, that's called very rich in the, in the original language is a word that means heavy. He was heavy with wealth. And it is the very same word we see in Genesis 12 when it talks about the heaviness or the greatness of the famine. But the word there doesn't mean glorious famine. It doesn't mean glorious riches. It means burdensome famine, a heaviness that is burdensome, burdensome riches. So in essence, this could be translated now, Abram was burdened in livestock, right? In silver and in gold. We don't want to miss that reference because we do see problems come here as a result of this wealth. It says, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, right? And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. What we see here in this first section of Genesis 13 is that these guys are growing in what they have in their physical possessions. They've got livestock and they've got gold and silver. Well, don't miss where that comes from. That comes from the blessing of God. God had told Abram, hey, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless you. And wherever you go, I'm going to take care of you. This has been proven even in the midst of Abram's selfishness in the journey to Egypt, right? Even in the midst of that sort of social calamity, we see that God is growing their wealth, that there's this blessing of God, not only upon Abram, but upon Lot. Remember, God had said to Abram, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. So Lot's wealth is growing right alongside Abram's, even though these guys have made some bad choices. But what I want us to see here as we look at the beginning of Genesis 13 is that in this case, and in many cases, even in our our lives and world today, wealth produces strife. Wealth produces strife. Now, not always. That's not universal. But what we do see is a trend, and we can see this certainly replicated in our own lives, that there is difficulty that comes when you get more and more and more stuff. As your stuff accumulates, there becomes more complexity, right? Right? 
there becomes more nervousness about what you're going to lose, a fear of being able to retain what you've got. There becomes a desire to protect what you have. The reality is that wealth produces strife. The Bible talks a lot about wealth. In fact, I'll just give you a, a smattering of things. These will, some of them will may be familiar to you and some of them may not. But listen to this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, right? What's it saying? It's saying wealth is a source of strife, that it becomes a a, a beginning of all kinds of problems, a desire to get more, an insatiability, a desire to protect and to retain, right? It becomes a thing that can even lead people from their faith. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18 says this, Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. There's a temptation to forget where the wealth comes from, to forget where the blessing comes from. We'll certainly see that in this text. We can look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes, right? There is a dissatisfaction that comes with the increase of stuff. Luke chapter 6 verse 37 talks a little bit about what we do with wealth. Luke 6 37 says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. A passage like that has to be said because there is this tendency for us once we get something to try and hold on to it. It's really interesting. Uh, I would say my family tends to be united in our pursuit of ice cream until such time as we have a carton of ice cream. And as soon as we have a carton of ice cream, we're fighting over the carton of ice cream. You understand, right? There's an interesting principle here. I think some of, many of us sort of think that the source of strife and the source of division in our world is people's wants or their needs. But I would actually suggest that many times what brings people together is a mutual understanding of their need, a mutual understanding of their poverty, a desire. Like like with my family, we're all united when we're chasing ice cream, and it's not until we have the ice cream that there's something to fight over. Does that make sense? Here we see that God has blessed Abram, and God has blessed Lot, and they have all this stuff, and it becomes a source of... Of strife. In fact, I think one of the most tragic sentences in this whole chapter, right, is verse 6. It says, So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, uh, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. If you're the kind of person who takes notes or you have a pen you want to underline, I would underline, So their, their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Have you experienced that in your life? Have you ever gotten to a place, and maybe you go, well, I've never been rich, or I don't even know what wealth looks like, or whatever, but, but all of us in one way or another have been blessed with stuff, and what happens? We get this stuff, and all of a sudden, we want to hold on to it, we want to protect it, we want to guard it. This idea here that, that they got so much that they could no longer find unity and togetherness is crushing to me. It's really, really frustrating and sad 
It says here that because of their herds and their flocks, their herdsmen were fighting. There was division. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So there's this friction. We see in the text that prosperity in this case breeds arrogance and independence, right? It's interesting to think about the fact that sometimes blessing, if not rightly understood, can turn into a social curse. Does that make sense? Blessing, if not rightly understood, can turn into a social curse because it becomes a source of division among brothers, between uncles and nephews, right? Because what we're tr- we, we, now we have this stuff and we're trying to keep it. We're trying to take care of it, the complexity and the restoration. That's just the first principle I want you to see. That the strife that they're dealing with in this particular case comes as a result of the blessing of God. Now, would we say then that the blessing of God is bad? We go, oh man, let's pray that God doesn't bless us. Let's pray that God doesn't enrich us. Let's pray that he doesn't prosper us, that he doesn't take care of us. He doesn't put food on our table because if we have that carton of ice cream, then we're going to fight over it. No, no, no. The key isn't to pray that you never receive a blessing so you'll never have to deal with the, the, the difficulty. The key is to be aware, to heighten your awareness, to lift up your eyes and raise your awareness to the fact that when God blesses you, and if you're following Christ and you're being obedient, he will bless you. When he blesses you, that may result in some sort of increase in your life, emotional, physical, spiritual, whatever. And when you receive that increase, there would be a temptation for you to become selfish and arrogant and, and, and sort of uh, clinging to the stuff rather than the one who gave it. Does that make sense? All it is is a warning. It's a fair warning to say that God will bless you if you're faithful and you want to be careful that you don't get so focused on the blessing and preserving the blessing that it divides you, right? That it divides you. Here we see that they were so wealthy that they could no longer dwell together. The land could not support them for their possessions are so great. So they have a, they have a predicament, right? They have a predicament. And what I want you to see this morning in our study is the way this predicament gets resolved. And it's really beautiful because I said at the beginning that we see Abram go back to the place where he started. And that's a little bit of a reset, right? It's a little bit like him going, okay, I blew it in Egypt. I gave my wife to some other people. I was trying to protect myself. Like I got to be the right guy. I got to be a man of faith. So he goes back to the starting point where he had set up an altar, where he had worshiped the Lord. He worships the Lord again. And what we're going to see now in Genesis 13 is a little bit of a different Abram. Look at what he does here. Look at verse 8. It says, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Here's something I I think I want to be sure we don't miss here. This is no longer Abram clinging to his own peace and his own life, his own preservation, right? Remember the Abram we saw on his way into Egypt? What was that Abram worried about? That Abram was worried about protecting himself, right? Making sure that he was able to live and that the Pharaoh didn't kill him. And so there was all kinds of drama that ensued, which will have long-lasting impact, right? Abram was trying to protect himself. Now he looks in the midst of this drama between the herdsmen and between uh, you know, Lot and himself. And instead of trying to cling to his own peace, instead of trying to cling to his own life, to the things that he wants at any cost, like he'd been before, what we see instead is an Abram who's willing to turn loose of stuff. Who's willing to relinquish it and let it go. It's no longer his priority trying to hold on to what he has. Trying to protect himself at any cost. It's interesting because it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been too surprising to have heard Abram use the blessing of God as a threat in this context, right? You know, you know what I'm saying? 
It wouldn't have been hard for Abram to come to Lot and say, look, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of fighting and there's a lot of people arguing and our herdsmen can't seem to get along and the land doesn't seem to be able to sustain two flocks that are as big as ours. And just so you know, I'm the one that God made an arrangement with, right? My name's Abram, your name's Lot. Don't forget where the blessing lies. And so you better get your herdsmen into shape and move them all along the way because I am the recipient of God's blessing and everything needs to be shaped around me. If Abram had done that, it wouldn't have been selfish, it would have been prideful, it would have been arrogant, but it wouldn't necessarily have been surprising based on the kind of Abram we saw in Genesis 12. I want you to see we're seeing a little bit of a different Abram here. Now, I'm not saying he's completely turned over a new leaf. What I'm saying is that like you and me, he's got bad moments in his story and he's got some really good moments in his story. He has good days and bad days. He has faithful days and selfish days, just like you, just like me. I want you to take heart from that, right? There aren't any heroes in the pages of scripture that get it right every day. They're just like us. They're really awesome moments and really crummy moments. And when we see one of our heroes in scripture have an awesome day, we don't want to go, that's it. He got his life all together. Everything is going to be perfect from here on out because it's only going to be a matter of time before Abram again shows us that he's broken just like we are. But on this particular day, Abram is not holding on to things. He's turning loose of them. He doesn't use his blessing or the promise of God as a threat or for leverage. See, Abram is being here, if I'm going to juxtapose two things, uh, by the way, this whole chapter and actually a couple of chapters in this book will show a contrast between Abram and Lot. The contrast here is the difference between faith and sight, faith and sight. We're seeing faith and sight contrasted here. At this point, Abram has recognized that in many ways, there's nothing he can do to impoverish himself if God has promised to prosper him. Does that make sense? There's nothing that Abram can do. Listen, he blew it in Egypt, right? He made some terrible decisions that will have lasting impact upon his marriage, right? Abram made some bad choices and he came out of those moments with the blessing of God. He came out of those moments with enrichment in some ways that had nothing to do with his own faithfulness, but had everything to do with the faithfulness of God. Does that make sense? So what, what has happened? The light bulb over Abram's head is this. I can't make myself poor. I can't make myself cursed. I can't do this because God has determined in his own power and in his own will to bless me. And once he recognizes that there's nothing he can do to impoverish himself or to deprive himself, that it's not possible for him to deprive himself of that which God has promised, that opens up all kinds of freedom in his life. And here's why that's important. Because you also, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, rest under his blessing. Ephesians 1 goes so far as to say that you and I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ, it is not possible for you to spiritually deprive yourself. It is not possible for you to spiritually impoverish yourself. And yet we get so worried about losing out. Somebody having a better experience than us. Somebody having a more emotional experience than us. Somebody knowing something we don't know or going somewhere we didn't go, right? We get so worried about holding on to and getting what other people have or losing what we've got. What Abram recognizes here is it isn't possible for me to give more away than God can replenish. Does that make sense? It isn't possible for me to do that. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven says, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In order to glorify himself, God will continue to give you everything you need so that you can accurately reveal him in his sacrificial ways and in his generosity and in his grace. And you will never deplete that coffer. Does that make sense? And what does that do? It frees you up to not have to be protectionist, right? It frees you up to not have to cling so closely to things that don't matter. Abram recognizes here that God will bless him and a life of sacrifice and generosity springs from faith in God. Let me say that again. If you're taking notes, write this one down. A life of sacrifice and generosity springs from faith in God. It springs from faith in God. And the, the adverse is also true. That a life of selfishness and pride, a life of having to hunker down and hold on to what you've got, springs from a lack of faith in God's ability to bless and provide. It, it comes from doubt in what God has said. Does that make sense? Those things are true. Abram is going to Lot. He says, hey, if you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. It's very similar to a system we had in my house the whole time my kids were growing up. Um, we realized really early with our kids that, uh, that they were going to fight. You know, if we had a cupcake or we had a bowl of ice cream or we had a piece of pizza or whatever, they were going to fight over who got the biggest piece, who got the best piece, which piece had the most pepperoni, not the cupcake, but the pizza, right? They're going to fight. So we came up with a system early on when we were raising our kids where one kid divides the cupcake and the other kid picks which piece they want, right? Now, what does that do? Well, it makes that kid who's dividing the cupcake be very meticulous in perfection of dividing it exactly right because if he divides it wrong, you can be sure your sister's going to pick the bigger half, right? We're so worried about holding on to the bigger piece. And so what that did is, you know, I mean, it made them frustrated sometimes because they're little shaky hands. It was funny to watch. Uh, It doesn't matter. But what Abram does here is because of his faith. Abram looks at the situation with faith. He says, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Abram leaves the resolution of the dispute in God's hands. He leaves the resolution of the dispute in God's hands. Why? Because he has faith in God that God will provide. Yes, there's this, there's this battle. And Abram goes, I don't need to fight for my piece of this. I'm going to let God resolve it. I love the faith of that. Now, we're going to contrast the faith of that with Lot. Back to Genesis chapter 13. Because while Abram is a man here demonstrating faith, Lot, on the other hand, is dependent upon his sight. Look at verse 10. Abram has just said, pick which way you want to go and I'll go the opposite way. Verse 10 Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Here's here's what I want you to see. Abram is acting... In faith, he trusts that God will settle it, that God will provide whatever he needs, that he doesn't have to fight for it or cling to it, that he can turn loose of it. Lot, on the other hand, trusts his eyes. He lifts up his eyes and he looks at the landscape and he, and he chooses what looks good to him, right? He chooses what looks good to him. Here's what's interesting. Lot rejects the promised land, right? God had promised Abram a land. Lot rejects the promised land in favor instead of a land that looks promising to him. You see the difference? 
There's a difference between the promised land of God and a land that looks promising to us. In fact, it's worth taking a full-on stop for just a second in the midst of the study and saying, I wonder if the, the land of promise that God has offered to us, we talk all the time about being an embassy, right? We talk about being ambassadors of the kingdom of God. I wonder if the kingdom of God is as promising to you personally as the land you've spied yourself. Does that make sense? Maybe the land of uh, personal prosperity or the land of fame or the land of power or the land of pleasure. There are all kinds of things that can drive us. And we lift up our eyes and it makes perfect sense to us. We look and we go, well, look at the, look at the valley here, the Jordan Valley. It's well watered. In fact, it looks like Egypt. What's happening? Lot has misunderstood where his wealth comes from. Lot has misunderstood where the flocks and the gold and the silver have come from. You know, you know what he's misunderstood? He started to think that that wealth came from the land that was like Egypt. So he looks and he goes, well, I got all this stuff when I was in Egypt. And now I'm looking at the land that, that Abram is offering me. And this land looks like Egypt. So if I'm going to increase my wealth, I need the good land. I need the garden-like land. I need the land that looks like Egypt. But do you see how he's done the wrong math? How he's recognized his own blessing, the blessing that God has passed on to him through Abram, and he's, he's attributed it to the, to the topography, right? He's attributed it to well-watered landscape and grassy lands and the river. So he goes and lives there. Why? Because he feels like that's where his blessing has come from. That's where future blessing will come from. The same thing can happen in our lives. In those moments where our eyes lift up and with our own sight, we start to depend on what looks promising to us instead of what God has promised, we will immediately set ourselves in a direction that leads to a destination of futility. Does that make sense? Why? Because we've attributed the blessing to the wrong things. It, it's possible that you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling pretty good about your bank account or you're feeling pretty good about your vocation or you're feeling pretty good about your marriage or you're feeling pretty good about your friendships or you're feeling pretty good about the vacation you just got back from or your planning or whatever. And if you're attributing the blessing in your life to your own wisdom or you're attributing it to your own financial prowess or you're attributing it to your own intellect or your own connections or whatever, if you're attributing it to yourself then you're going to lean more into yourself. But, but there's a way that seems, this is Proverbs 14, 12, by the way. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to men and women, but the end of that path is death. A way that seems right to us. Lot looks at the valley. He can go anywhere he wants. He looks at the valley and he goes, this looks like the place to enrich myself. And it's because he's misunderstood where his blessing comes from. It's worth noting that when he distances himself from Abram, Whatever blessing he had is immediately disconnected, right? Because the, the blessing that Lot had up until that point was only because of his proximity to God's man. So he moves himself away and, and gets closer to a place that's wicked, right? He misunderstood where the wealth came from. He's rich not because of Egypt or the river or the fertile soil, but because of God and his proximity to Abraham. The Bible teaches us that there's an uncertainty to human riches, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the, the, the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Right? Don't, don't put your hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but in God, who is the one who provides all things. It says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4, Do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I'll guarantee you that the prosperity and the blessing that Lot hoped to achieve in the Jordan River Valley 
never came. And in fact, he moves himself closer and closer to a city that's wicked. And it's worth noting, back to Genesis chapter 13, Moses, when he writes this, he gives us a couple of notes. It says in verse 10, uh, it says in verse 10, lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So even as Moses writes it, he's saying to us who are reading, he's going, look, when Lot picked it, it looked awesome, but it's only going to be a matter of time before it is desolated, right? Before it is utterly destroyed by God. So once again, the thing that makes sense to me, when I look at it with my human eyes and my human perspective, that thing sometimes ends up in destruction and death. He also tells us in the text that there was great wickedness. Look at verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now some of you in the room might not know anything about where this is going, but ultimately Lot and his family end up in this wicked city. I don't think that on this day they set out to to assimilate themselves into a city of wickedness that would be destroyed by God. I don't think that was Lot's initial plan. But he set his sights in the direction of human understanding, and once you set your sights in that direction, your destination is assured. Right? Not on purpose. I think there may be some of us in the room who've set our, set our lives in the wrong direction. We're pursuing the wrong things. And then we're surprised when we wind up with futility. Or we wind up with frustration. Or we ri- wind up with division. Or we wind up in battles. Or we wind up embittered towards other people. Be- we could trace our steps back. You almost need to pull the peppermint forest card. Not to do that again. But you almost need to pull the peppermint forest card and go back to the beginning and go, when did I get on this path? Back it up and set your direction towards what? Towards the kingdom of God, toward the promise of God, toward every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. As blessed as Abram was, we have been infinitely more greatly blessed in the incarnation of Christ, in the coming of God in a body to take the sin of the world upon himself. We have been infinitely more blessed in the fact that Jesus pays the penalty for our sin through his shed blood on the cross, that he dies in our place, that he's buried dead, but he rises again, proving that he has power over life and death. And then by his grace, extending to us that self-same resurrection, right? We have been blessed. Don't forget where it comes from. Don't forget where your safety and your security are because he sets his sight in the wrong direction and his destination will be a direct result of that. He sets his sight. You see the difference between faith and sight? Abram is dependent upon what God can do. And Lot is going, this looks pretty good to me. I, I think it's worth all of us this morning stopping to go, the choices that you made this week, were those choices based on the promise and the character, the nature of God? Or were those choices based on what made sense to you? I want to be careful in this because God also gives us discernment, right? He hasn't made us blind. He's not made us foolish. He's not made us ignorant. He gives us the ability to learn and to understand and be discerning. But that discernment, what's key with that discernment is that we have to be paying attention with God's eyes and not our own. Look at the way this chapter ends. Look at verse 14. After this, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now remember, uh, Lot has taken all the fertile river valley, right? He's taken all the lovely parts. What's left for Abram? Just kind of the dusty hill country. You can't really plant much there. He's, he's surrounded by dust. And God says, I want you to look up and I want you to look in every direction. I want you to understand I'm going to give you all of it. It doesn't matter what Lot chose or what you took. What matters is all of it belongs to you because that's my choice. Remember, Abram's not even in the position he's in by his own choice. How did Abram end up in the position he's in? God chose him. 
There's a difference between our choice and the choice of God. He winds up in this space looking with his eyes. Now, Lot looked with his eyes. What's the difference between Lot lifting up his eyes and now Abram lifting up his eyes? The difference is that God directed him to lift up his eyes and look around. It's, it's vision under the direction of God. Some of you know that um, in like four weeks ago now, I had COVID. That's a bummer. It was um, really not nice and whatever, but the inter- most of my symptoms are gone. I have like a dry cough or whatever, but I, and I can't smell or taste anything still. I still can't smell or taste anything, which is problematic. And that manifested itself this week uh, in my house on Monday or Tuesday, because uh, I went to get milk out of the fridge and uh, it was past the sell-by date. Now, many of you who know what's going on, you know that milk is safe past the sell-by date for a little while. You don't have to throw it away when it gets past the sell-by date. That just means the date they need to sell it by. But the way you can tell whether the milk has turned and is decent for human consumption is by smell, which I have none of, right? I have no smell. So I can't even, like I can take a bar of soap and not smell it at all. So I pull the milk out. I want to have some milk. I can't, uh, I got nothing. So, well, the only other way you can tell if milk is spoiled is through taste. And I don't have that either, right? So I got, I got a, a jug of milk here that I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do. I want to drink some milk, but I don't know. So I look at my wife. And I said, I, I need you to tell me, should I drink this milk or not? And she goes, it's, it's good after the sell-by date. And I was like, yeah, up until a point. But there's a tipping point here. I can't trust my own judgment. I don't have scent. I don't have taste. I need you to tell me if the milk is safe, right? And in that moment, what was required of me? Because my wife could have played a really mean trick on me, couldn't she? Right? <laughs> she could have been really, I may be telling you. And then we went into counseling right after this, right? My wife came over, she poured a little bit of the milk, she smelled it, she tasted it, she goes, this is fine, you're fine, quit being a baby, right? So she, you know, I got a little scolding, it was fine. But what I have to do, I can look, I can smell, but, but my judgment is impaired, right? My view is, is somehow lessened. What do I have to do? I have to trust the judgment and the vision, the scent and the taste of someone else. God says to Abram, I want you to lift up your eyes and I want you to look. And I think when Abram looks, looks, he goes, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the dirt, right? Lot took all the great land. He took all the fertile soil. He took the river valley, right? He's in proximity to the cities and the, and the centers of trade. Here I am. I'm in the dust. I want you to see what God does. This is really cool. The Lord said to Abram, verse 14, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Here it is, verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built the altar to the Lord, built an altar to the Lord. I want you to see what, what I perceive to be the, the grace and compassion of God. Lot, his nephew, he just said, hey, you want to go right? Uh, you go, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. It would have been possible for Lot to say, hey, why don't we split the fertile valley uh, on either side of the river? You go on this side of the river, I'll go on the other side. Lot could have done a lot of things in that case to split up the good land. He didn't do that. He took all the good land. And Abram is left with the dust. So I love that when God comes to Abram after this whole thing happens, he goes, hey, I want you to lift up your eyes and I want you to look with my view. East and west and north and south. I'm giving all this to you. And you see the dust? And Abram's like, yeah, it's all I got. It's all I got out of this deal. Dust. I got the leftovers. I got the dirt. And he goes, I'm going to make your descendants 
like the dust. I think there's this redemptive thing. I think there's this beautiful redemptive message that God is giving to Abram. He's saying to him, you know, what looks like dust to you is actually a picture of my faithfulness. It's actually a picture of my redemptive potential. You look around and you only see dust. But when I look at the dust, what I see are the number of your descendants. I wonder if there are some of you sitting in the room this morning who look at your life in 2021 and it feels like you're you're kind of camped out in the dirt. And maybe you look around at other people, you watch their Facebook feeds, you see their Instagram feeds, and it feels like they're having the time of their lives and you aren't. Or it feels like they're prospering or things at their job are good or things in their friendships are good or things in their family are good. And you look at your own life and it feels like you're in the dust. And I would want to encourage you this morning to remember that our God is a God who can take what looks like dust to us and bless us with it. That he can lift up our eyes and say, well, no, no, no. What what looks like nothing to you looks like everything to me. God can take the dirt and the dust and he can use it to bless us, to glorify himself. I would encourage you this morning to look at your own life and evaluate the things that maybe seem a little bit dusty. And then turn your attention to God and say, God, will you show me how this dust serves your purpose? Will you show me how this dust illustrates your faithfulness and your redemptive power? Will you show me how this dust will be used by you to further your kingdom and your glory and my good and the good of my neighbors? And allow God to say, look, I see you looking down at your feet, but I want you to see it with my eyes. Lift up your eyes, but with the view of God. The last thing we see in the text is that Abram builds an altar as he's done before, it says in verse 18, Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This isn't the first time he's done that. It's a couple of times now. You see, Abram knows where his blessing comes from. There's a radiant peace rooted in confident expectation, if you will. Abram knows where his blessing comes from. And so he doesn't miss the opportunity to worship in response. I love the fact that you could follow Abram's trail by these little altars that are set up all over the place. Places where he stopped and said, God is good. And then he moves to another place and he goes, God is good. And he moves to another place and he goes, God is good. I want us, family, Fullerton Free, I want us to be the kind of place where people can see where we've been because of the altars we've left behind us to the glory of God. Because God has provoked in us a worship and a stirring that goes, look at who God is. Look at who God is. I I want your coworkers and your families and your friends to be able to see where you've been by the altars you've left behind. I would love our trail to be dotted, not with breadcrumbs, but with places of worship, places that point people again back to God. And the same for my life, for for my life. I want my, the, the, the past, the place that I've tread, to be dotted with little altars everywhere where I stopped and said, man, this looked like dust to me, but God was doing something else. Praise him, right? We're going to finish our service this morning with uh, an opportunity to respond to worship. And maybe for you this morning, that is, uh, that's looking at the dust in your life and allowing God to tell a different story. Maybe for you, that's recognizing the ways in which the blessing of God has become something of a curse because you've clung to the blessing and not the blesser. Um, there are lots of ways to look at this text and reevaluate it, but don't miss the fact that when we put our faith in Christ and in his blessing, it gives us the freedom to turn loose to be people of generosity and sacrifice because we cannot deprive ourselves of that which God has promised to give. We have that in Christ. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us a heart of awareness and understanding 
an openness to see you on the move, to look with your eyes and not our own, to recognize that sometimes our view of things misses where the blessing actually comes from. Help us to be generous and sacrificial in the conflicts that we arrive in, to hold our stuff loosely and to recognize that you and your glory and the good of others are more important than us clinging desperately to what we think we deserve. Help us to be people that recognize where that blessing comes from and to build altars of worship everywhere we go that people would be able to see where we've been by following the trail of our praise. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.